Please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, It's probably falling open to that chapter about now, which is good. Uh, Go ahead and stand if you would, and I'll be reading verses 2 through 16, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16, as we, again, consider Paul's teaching on uh, headship, what it means, and really how that ultimately will flush itself out in the reflection of worship in the congregation. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while prophesying, praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Please be seated. Now, if you listen carefully this morning, you can hear the sounds of theological and cultural warfare echoing from this text. You may not be aware of this, but there is an ongoing raging battle in the evangelical ranks concerning the nature of male-female roles in marriage. Theologians are regularly lobbing doctrinal grenades at one another in blogs and Christian publications. One discussion concerns the term complementarianism, that is, the concept that men and women have different roles in the home and in the church, particularly as a result of their unique creation as male and female. That's contrasted with egalitarianism, that is the concept that men and women are to exercise essentially exactly the same roles in the home and in the church regardless of their maleness or femaleness. Now, some of the controversies over the term itself, that is complementarianism, and many herald that as kind of a man-made doctrinal innovation. It's not what the church has always believed, that's not even the word that we use, so it's not the way that marriage relationships should be lived out. Now, Danny Burke, who does a lot of writing for the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that I've commended to you over the last couple of weeks and from the book uh, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and, and Womanhood, this isn't, quote is not from there, it's from a uh, couple years ago he was responding to this uh, idea that complementarianism is a man-made term. He says this, the claim that complementarianism, complementarianism is a man-made doctrinal innovation is a myth. The word complementarianism is indeed a relatively new term, but it is a new term coined to refer to an ancient teaching that is rooted in the text of Scripture. On the contrary, egalitarianism is the doctrinal innovation. It is not the biblical idea that men and women are created equally in God's image with distinct and complementary differences. Indeed, some version of what we now call complementarianism is what the church has assumed for its entire 2,000-year history. Recent attempts to flip to flip this script amount to unserious historical revisionism. That's Steady Burke. Now, it certainly is true that the world believes that men came up with the idea of male headship and of authority and submission in marriage. 
Unfortunately, all that men did was to invent the perversion of headship, not the proper understanding and pursuit of it. It is God who designed male and female to perfectly relate together in a loving, effective, leader-helper relationship which would enable them to glorify Him in accomplishing God's eternal purposes. So what we'll see this morning is that God has designed the universe to operate under His authority in such a way that a man answers to Christ for leading and loving a woman as he directs their partnership to glorify God in every way. God has designed the universe to operate under His authority in such a way that a man answers to Christ for leading and loving a woman as he directs their partnership to glorify God in every way. A man is to lovingly exercise headship over a woman under the authority of Christ. Now, as we come to verse 3, we've been discussing the foundation, the nature of what headship is, and the nature of male-female, and really all relationships, that they have structure to them. There's a, a hierarchy and authority and submission, and that this is not inappropriate. This is correct. And we talked about the implications of that hierarchy, that authority and submission are an indispensable element of God's plan, that authority does not imply superiority of ability, personhood, intellect, spirituality, or value. That submission does not in any way imply inferiority of ability, personhood, intellect, spirituality, or value. Hierarchy then does not inherently promote abuse, domination, coercion, or manipulation. That's, that's Marxism. That's what Marxism says, that if you have any kind of, of hierarchy, if you have any kind of authority structure, then that leads to inherently an abuse, a manipulation, and a control. No, God designed a hierarchy of relationship. He built it into the fabric of creation, into the fabric of male-female relationships, of the government, of the family. God built this. It is only the perversion of it that causes problems. And so if you listen to your culture, listening to humanistic ideals, you will then begin to hate the idea of headship, hate the idea of authority and submission, but this is not what the Bible teaches. This is not what God would have for you. He would have for you to love these things. On Thanksgiving weekend, we are to love and rejoice, be thankful for the instructions that God has given to us for male and female. Because these are built around the very way that he designed us. Of course he is correct in the way that he instructs us to live out our relationships. We should rejoice in this and be very careful of not sucking from our culture an inappropriate understanding of relationship because men are sinful. That's a problem. But not the structure of relationship that God has given. So authority and submission are based on biblical love and wisdom, not tyranny and domination. Now, We've already talked about the first unique headship role that is designated in verse 3. And we're going slowly because this, this designation of male-female relationships is built into the very fabric of creation, as Paul alludes to, and as we'll look at this morning, in verse 8. It says, man doesn't originate from woman, but woman from man. That is, the woman was created out of the man. So all these things are built back into creation. It says, the man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Now, that's not some kind of weird, uh, you know, twisted view of a man dominating a woman. That has to do with the fact that man had to have a helper in order to accomplish his task, and that's why the woman was created. He could not procreate without a woman. It was necessary for him to be able to fill the earth to accomplish God's task, and she comes alongside of him as an equal helper with a different role. That's what we're referring to as we talk about these. And it's essential because what Paul is talking about in Corinth, as he's going to address the particular issue there, is the fact that maleness and femaleness are important. 
Again, they're built into the very fabric of who we are as given in creation, and the expression of maleness and femaleness is not incidental, both in form, that is when someone walks into a room, they should know that there are women and know that there are men and know that they are not the same. Additionally, in worship, the idea that there is, a, there is an authority structure should be indicated in the behavior of the congregation as a whole. That's his whole point. But we need to understand how God built these things or we will totally misunderstand what he is saying and we will somehow think culturally and we will begin to cast aside biblical ideas and replace them with cultural ones. That's why we're taking so much time. So we've talked about the unique relationship of Christ to men, that is, to males. Now, this morning, we'll talk about the unique relationship of a man to a woman. So back in verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of a man and that the man is the head of a woman. That's where we'll be going now. And we'll, we'll discuss it under two headings. One, the definition of headship, right? And then the origin of headship. Where does this role? Remember, we're talking about headship as a function, right, the, of the exercise of authority in a relationship. Where does it come from and what does it mean? We'll spend several weeks on this because there's much confusion here. Really, we're only going to get to the origin. Where does this come from? Why is it tied back to creation? Because that matters fundamentally to everything, how God built us. So first, let's talk about a definition. Right? All of these words, by the way, are important. So in this phrase, and the man is the head of a woman, all of these are meaningful. The and really it continues the list of areas of headship that Paul wants to talk about, and that, that ties them together. It's not moving to a new subject, and, and yet the, the headship is not exactly the same. Christ is different in his very being than a man. A woman is the same in her very being as a man, and so therefore their, the headship relationship is different. So, and the man, we defined a man last week. This is important. Maleness matters because God created it. So, who, who, what's a man? A human being with XY chromosomes, the potential to be a father, remember, who so has a DNA stamp. That DNA stamp then leads to a certain potentiality that he can produce sperm. No woman can or ever will naturally do such a thing. So his maleness is based in the way that God built him physically, but then it flows out not only in his potentiality to be a father, but also as one who's created in the image of God to express his human capacities according to biblically defined manhood. On the basis of his maleness, he has a particular role in society, in marriage, in the church, in society as a whole, that's built around not God's whim, but God's creative act of making him male. So all these things fit together, and when they get disassociated, we descend into insanity. There's no differentiation between sex and gender, maleness, and then manhood. They are related directly together. They cannot be taken apart. So the man is the head. This is important, right? This is not a role he ascends to at some point in time. The man is the head of the woman. This is fundamentally his role relationship to her. The man is the head. We talked about the, the basic definition of headship as exercising authority under God's direction for the good of those under authority. But specifically here, and I'll mention it again in a moment, the definition of headship is the partnership, this is in marriage, or really between a man and a woman, most specifically represented in marriage, right? Headship is the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman. The man bears the primary responsibility to lovingly lead the partnership with help and counsel from the woman in a God-glorifying direction. God will hold the man accountable for how he led the relationship. That is his headship. And it is to be led in a God-glorifying direction. So, and the man is the head of a woman. Now, here we run into all kinds of trouble, right? 
Because if you're on the political scene, you're not allowed to define a woman. People have been avoiding this definition because of the cultural baggage it now holds. What a travesty that we can't even define these things without somehow running afoul of our cancel culture. And you've got intelligent people. That's not the issue. And I'm not in any way denigrating their intelligence, simply that they refuse on the, on the basis of ideology to even be allowed to define woman. Well, we are not afraid to do this. The Bible defines manhood and womanhood. What is a woman? Who is a woman? A human being with XX chromosomes and the potential to be a mother. She has a, she has a DNA stamp that does what? It builds into her the, potenti- the potential to be a mother. That is, she can produce an egg. No man ever could, ever will do this naturally, ever. So there's a distinction in their very, the way they are built in their very DNA and how that fleshes itself out in the structure of their being. Additionally, it's only a woman who can carry a child and bring it to its proper gestational age. And then this woman is created in the image of God to express human capacities according to biblically defined womanhood. How God defines her role is based around her gender, that she is a woman. And so God carefully defines each of these things. These are things the church must be reminded of, must cling to. These are basics in one sense. And they've been totally forgotten. And so somehow you could separate what a woman does from who a woman is in that sense, fundamentally and biblically. So that's the definitions involved in this context. Now, already, however, even as I give those definitions, there's a problem because translationally, your ESV Bibles, if you have those, do not read the same way I just read mine. Right? So the NASB says that the, uh, the man is the head of a woman, but the ESV says the head of a wife is her husband. So what the ESV does is take the general words for male and female and translate them specifically as husband and wife. Now, this is not without warrant. These words are often used. They depend on the context, right? The Greek word underlying is the same for man, woman, husband, wife, or at least it can be used in both ways. In this case, the translators believe that the context indicates that really this headship relationship, Paul is only talking about a husband and wife relationship. Now, while, again, that's not out of bounds, certainly the primary headship relationship described in Scripture is husband to wife, Ephesians 5 and other places. However, I think that limits, and every other translation thinks this too, that that limits the application of headship only to marriage, and I don't think scripturally that's true. The leader-helper relationship is not only reflected in marriage, it's reflected in the church, and it reflects out into society. It's reflected in the way that men and women are created, unique to each relationship. Right? The headship of marriage is not exactly the same as the expression of headship, say, in the church, or as it flows out into society. But there is that kind of relationship. The man is the head of a woman in that way. So I think to reduce it to husband and wife only is maybe even culturally conditioned on, on the translator's part. Maybe. Because they perhaps are, are uncomfortable with expressing that idea of male headship as maleness and femaleness. Now, so that's why I don't think that husband and wife, is the best translation. Because really, again, the whole context here, yes, it has to do, I mean, underlying the vast majority of the relationships in Corinth would have been husband-wife. But there were singles at Corinth. We're talking here in Corinth about the overall interactions of men and women together, not only husbands and wives. So that's all built into the fabric of what we're talking about. So I don't think husband and wife is the best definition. So Additionally, the Bible doesn't specify directly then the way that headship fleshes out in culture. That's why that makes it a little difficult. 
Right? Clearly in the church, there's a headship nature that the man is not, or the woman is not to teach or have authority over a man, that the man is to lead in the husband-wife relationship. But just because the Bible does not specify directly what male leadership looks like in society, right, we need to, I think, affirm that that is true of leadership and helping even as we stretch it out into other institutions. Now, we need to be careful. The Bible clearly says that a woman is to submit right, to her own husband, not to all men in general. Not the same way she submits to her husband. She is not called to submit to every man. Right? However, the Bible does not say that a woman cannot be a boss in the workplace and cannot be a political leader, that that is somehow sinful. The Bible does not say that. So that's not a place where you want to go if the Bible doesn't say it. But it doesn't eliminate, even there, a kind of headship relationship of leading and helping, right? even, in those, even in those roles. In fact, Proverbs 31 almost certainly indicates a woman exercising a kind of societal authority over men as she buys and sells land. She would have been interacting with them continually, buying and selling, directing, receiving. Right? So there's a, a rich, multi-layered role for women, even in society. However... It does appear that the way God created men and women prepares them for the roles of leader and helper. Additionally, an emphasis on women taking the lead in society tends to downplay or diminish the value and, pro and priority of a woman bearing and rearing children, something that men are not designed to do. Although the role of head clearly involves the exercise of God-given authority, right, this is in the light of the intrinsic relationship between men and women. Right, this, the equal being that they share. So now let's, let's talk, let's move into having defined our terms. Let's again define headship, but really in light of some contrasts, what headship is and isn't. And again, we'll get very specific in the coming weeks. This is what it looks like for a man to flesh out his loving and leadership responsibility. But here we're just doing so in general because we want to move to the origin of this very concept. So again, the definition of headship in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lovingly lead the partnership with help and counsel from the woman in a God-glorifying direction. Male headship, then, is not the invention of white, Protestant, power-hungry men. All right? It's the invention of Scripture. It is the designation of what Scripture gives in the way that a man relates to a woman. But this is purposeful because this is has to do with how they were created. It's not God making things up, right, or people misinterpreting the Bible about what this actually means. It is based and built into the very way in which they were created. All right, so a couple thoughts here. True partnership. So, so this, this headship of a man over a woman, right, is a true partnership, not domination. That is, it is not the man dominating the woman in the partnership and calling it equal, Right? No, it is actually equal from the standpoint of who they are, their intelligence, their creativity, their abilities, their image of God. It has to do with how he directs and that he is responsible to that. So it's a true partnership, and it's not a domination. Ray Orland, who wrote in the book Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that I commended to you a couple weeks ago, he says, God calls the man with the counsel and help of the woman to see that the male-female partnership serves the purposes of God, not the sinful urges of either member of the partnership. It's not that a man enters into marriage and tries to control his, woman's sin his wife's sinful desires. He's got to direct her because she's just going to make mistakes all over the place. No, he's called to control his own sinful desires. They are equally sinful. And yet he is given charge of making sure that those sinful tendencies are directed towards the Lord with the ongoing help and input of his wife at all times. It's a true partnership. Again, Orland, the antithesis to male leadership is male domination. 
By male domination, I mean the assertion of men's will over the woman's will, heedless of her spiritual equality, her rights, and her value. See, domination says, look, essentially, men get what they want, and women are required to come underneath that. Right? that that's not male headship. That's male domination, and it's an inappropriate understanding of this partner relationship. This is where I'm going to circle back around to pick up a comment I made several weeks ago, that this is not Doug Wilson's view of the, of the male-female relationship. And I said that on purpose. I used the name purposely because many in my congregation and many of my young men particularly are drawing from his view of male-female relationships. Now again, Doug Wilson has many good things to say. He's written some books that you could read pieces of and say, that's great. But there's much of what he says or the foundation of what he says that is dangerous. So I'm not going to have Doug Wilson morning. I don't want to give it that much time. I'm going to give you a couple reasons why I believe that it is dangerous for you to draw from the stream of his thinking. Again, I, wouldn't, I don't say that lightly, and when it reaches a level of alarm, that's when I would bring something like this, but I think there are some dangerous things. It begins with theology. You might have read his books about dating or having, you know, having a marriage or, or his books on apologetics, some of which are really good, and you don't understand what his theology is. Understand that as you begin to buy into the things that he might say about maleness and femaleness, that all come from an understanding of his theology. Right? Underneath his theology is what we call, what is called the federal vision or the objectivity of the covenant. What that means is this. Right? All who are baptized are objectively in a covenant with God and are united with Christ in a real way. Now hear me. Baptism, the baptism of an infant or the baptism of an adult, even if they are not a believer, puts them into a kind of real union with Christ from which they can fall away. This is not the teaching of the Bible. It is one step away from sacramentalism. That is, that baptism is efficacious. In fact, it is that baptism is efficacious, just not unto salvation. This is not even the view of all Presbyterians. Okay, he's in the Presbyterian sphere, but as he moves further away, even the Presbyterian sphere is starting to set him outside the bounds. They've already done that. He's outside the bounds of normal Presbyterianism. You need to understand that as well. We would shake hands and rejoice with most of our Presbyterian brethren about what they believe, even though we don't infant baptize. All right? That's, that's one issue. Right? And there's much more to it than that. And by the way, he's distanced himself from that. He says, I'm not a, I'm, don't call me a federal vision guy. Well, the reason he's distanced himself is because the whole, a whole portion of that movement moved directly into sacramentalism and now proclaims that baptism is efficacious unto salvation in the Roman Catholic manner. We call that federal vision dark. He would call himself federal vision light, but now he says, I don't want to be called that. But if you read his writings, he said, look, I still believe everything I said about that. I just don't want to be called that because the title is no longer valuable to him. Right, so that's the federal vision. Infant baptism, which I talked about. Now, that leads to a second issue, which is what he teaches in his church and requires for those who attend his church, that is paedo-communion. Infants must take communion. Must, not may, must. Infants from the womb must engage in taking the wine or taking the juice and the wafer. Why? This is theological. If they have been brought into a true union with Christ through their baptism, which is what he would proclaim, and they must be baptized. It's not, it's not optional. They must maintain their status in the covenant community through pedo communion. If they don't, then they ultimately could be removed from that as an infant. So they must maintain their covenant commitment, their covenant, their, their covenant privileges by taking of pedo communion. This puts him far outside, or at least 
much outside the bounds of most of Presbyterianism, right? That do not hold to this aberration. It is that. It is an aberration without a doubt. But he believes this, teaches it, has no compunction. He, he will hold to all of this. Pado baptism, pado communion, which then also, it's all tied into, this is really important, it's tied into a post-millennial eschatology that is not the same as every kind of post-millennial eschatology. Well, what is it? What are those words? Simply, when Christ comes, he will come to an earth that has been Christianized. That is that the church will have brought about the Christianization of all nations. Every nation on the face of the earth will have a government that proclaims the lordship of Christ and will have baptized members, that is, baptized citizens. That's Doug Wilson's view of postmillennialism. When that happens, then Christ will come and not before then. Now, that's, that is not the same as every person who has held to postmillennialism. Right? That smacks of and moves its way toward what we call theonomy, which is that the governments of nations must institute Old Testament law, or at least some or part of it, in order for them to truly be governments to whom Christ would come. Right? So that's, I would call that hard postmillennialism. Now, there are those who have been post-millennial down throughout the ages, Jonathan Edwards and others, whose view is simply that as the church does its work, there will be a great revival over time, there will be a mass uh, conversions to Christ, and that's when Christ will come. Right? We don't hold, we don't believe that that is true. Right? We believe that things will, get, things will get darker and harder, and that Christ will one day return to set all of that right. Right, a premillennial eschatology, but nonetheless, he bases his view of this on Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where he says, says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What he believes is that you must baptize the nations, not individuals. And if you baptize a nation, that means that the Christian government of that nation initiates the baptismal rite on all who are in that nation. In doing so, unites them covenantally to Christ so that Christ in return, whether they're believers or not. That's what he teaches. That's what he holds. He makes no apology for it at all. I don't think that you should believe that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. The elders of this church do not believe that the Bible teaches that. And again, it's one step away from a pure sacramentalism which says we baptize believers and unbelievers. It turns believers or unbelievers into believers, at least in a quasi sense. So if you are drinking from the Doug Wilson stream, this is what you are drinking. He's written on this. It's all there. Now that leads to a misunderstanding of what husbands and wives are doing in marriage and what men are doing in the world, or at least it's drawn from the same stream. When he reads Genesis 1, he says there's dominion. Man is to exercise dominion over the world. That is still true today, that we're to exercise dominion. And he reads that specifically male. Men are to exercise dominion, and therefore women are part of man's dominion. So when a man enters into marriage, he is exercising dominion over his wife. He is adding her into the group of people that he rules. This is a totally inappropriate view of marriage. Genesis 1, which we'll look at in just a minute, indicates that man and woman together exercise dominion, that the words dominion and domination have no place in marriage. There's true headship and true authority under Christ for the man to lead, but this is not his exercise of dominion over a woman. Man and woman were given that task jointly to exercise dominion over the created order. So he says things like this. This leads to a, sort, a kind of, of, of condescending patriarchy, which is really male chauvinism in disguise. He says this, 
federal husband, 27. It's much good in the federal husband, but it, 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 there's much also that's a twisting of scripture. He says, if a woman does not do the dishes, the first time the dishes are not done, he must sit down with his wife immediately and gently remind her that this is something that has to be done. He can't lose his temper, he says. He's got to do this really nicely. He does it without rancor. If she, if she complies, he must move up a step, now requiring that another of her duties be done. So all of them will sit down, say, you didn't do this duty, you didn't do this duty, you better do this duty. Uh, and once she starts to do it, then he gives her the next duty. If she, rebe- if she continues to rebel after patient effort, he should at some point call the elders of the church and ask them for a pastoral visit. He initiates church discipline. Step two, on his wife when she does not follow his directions in caring for the home. Now, so can the husband or can the wife call the elders on her husband when he's mean? Because he's not laying his life down like her. This gets really ridiculous, and it's very patronizing. Right? He, he says elsewhere in the, in the federal husband, women just, they need a firm hand. Really. Are they, are they animals? All right, give them a firm hand. It's, it's male chauvinism, and it's not pretty. Now, in case, in case you think I'm taking that too far, because well, he has a retraction on that. Well, I didn't really mean that. It was bad writing, he says. Well, it is bad writing because it's really bad theology. Because I really meant what's real, if it's really bad in the home. He doesn't say that in that book at all. He just says anything and anything that's to be done in the home. But this gets worse because it reflects underneath this idea of domination or dominion is built into his theology of male-female relationships. He says this about the sexual act. This is from Fidelity, chapter 7, location 978 if you use Kindle. He says, however, he says, however we try, the sexual act cannot be made into an egalitarian pleasuring party. What he's responding to is the idea that sex is between a man and a woman is, is for pleasure. Right? Well, it's not only for pleasure, and certainly our society misunderstands the sexual act, but it's not less than for pleasure. He says, look, it's not, it's not true. It's not about the woman receiving pleasure and the man also receiving pleasure. He says this, a man penetrates, conquers, colonizes, plants. A woman receives, surrenders, and accepts. This is, of course, offensive to all egalitarians. It's not just offensive to egalitarians. If a man walks into the bedroom saying he's using words like conquer, then you ought to call the elders. I kid you not. This is not the issue. This is not what is going on in marriage when it comes to the sexual act, the act of physical oneness, of unity together. We discussed this in depth in 1 Corinthians 7. There's an egalitarianism certainly in the sexual act where a man does not control, have control over the woman's body. The, the woman has authority over the man's body. The man has authority over the woman's body equally. We discussed this. He's just dead wrong and very, very dangerous. I've seen this ruin marriages. I've, I've sat in the counseling office where a man will say, the woman is supposed to be surrendering to me whatever I want and whenever I want, she just receives we well, can imagine how that was going over in his home. And when he did not get what he wanted, he left. I'm not saying that happens in every marriage or that everyone who believes that does that. I'm only saying that's what it leads to. It's not about control, domination, colonization. It's about love and grace and kindness, participating together jointly in the act of, of, of intimacy that reflects the very intimacy of God. And that, as the Lord gives grace, also results in children. So it's a, it's, it's a dangerous discussion and it leads to serious misunderstanding, and it ought to be completely retracted, but it can't be because that's his view of dominion. A man is exercising dominion over his wife in the sexual act, and in every other way, this is inappropriate, and it is dangerous to the extreme. Young men, I do not want, that's in, it's not biblical. It will harm your marriage. It will harm your view of women. 
This is a twisting of what it is. So that's why I'm warning you against it. Again, as I said, he's an erudite man. He goes, got, got some great stuff in apologetics, and he says intelligent things about government, all of these things. But he is not to be trusted in these areas, and therefore I urge you to not draw from the things he says. Now be careful here, because I'd like to use this as maybe a bit of an example of how a church can use or misuse the internet or use your social resources. Because if you hop on the internet and, and do five Google searches on Doug Wilson, you're going to come up with 100 haters of Doug Wilson. I tell you this, most of those haters of Doug Wilson hate you too. All right, his enemies mostly will never be your friends, and they shouldn't be. Don't start sending those, those, those websites to one another, those discernment websites, because those people hate John MacArthur, they hate John Piper, they hate the Bible. Do not simply do a trolling through the internet and find bad things about Doug Wilson. Oh, that's what Chris said. That is not what I said. I talked about theology, I talked about actual quotes, I talked about how that relates to how a man really should treat his wife, not a perversion of it. Those things are true, but be so careful. Guys, don't do this with anyone. This is how we tend to run. Now you've got 50, you know, Doug Wilson is bad quotes showing up on your Facebook because you did the search for it. And it's impounded in your mind that he's evil for certain reasons. And you don't even, one, you don't know that's true. Two, you don't know how that's true. And you haven't properly understood it. Don't do this with anything. Never get your primary information from the internet about anything. Sometimes it can, you can track things down. You can get some good information from blogs and other places. Almost, it's just rare. And it's certainly rare in anything like Facebook or TikTok or Instagram or any of those things that you can draw out information. You're getting pieces of things. You're going to have to dig into it a little bit more. So please, do this well. But you need to understand that that's a dangerous view. And it's one of the reasons that people take pot shots at complementarianism because bad complementarianism, an inappropriate view of dominion, has gotten mixed in with that. This comes, it flows really, Bill Gothard, Doug Phillips, Doug Wilson. And it goes back certainly far, far beyond there. So, true, a headship relationship is a true partnership, not domination. And it's a loving partnership, not dominion. It is not dominion. It is the partnering together of a man and a woman to accomplish the work that God has given them with the man leading the way and with the man being responsible before God that that works its way out, which means that there is a true female submission, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks as well. I'm not undoing the authority relationship. I'm prayerfully undoing anything that has to do with domination or dominion because those are an inappropriate way to view the marriage relationship. So it's a loving partnership, not a dominion. Now, it is true, and here's the problem. Men have done great harm to women. Down throughout the ages, men have dominated them in every country, in every place, in the world, throughout time, men have harmed women. It's not that women never harm men, but in general, there has been a patriarchy in which men dominate women inappropriately. But that's not biblical headship. That's not a biblical understanding. That's a perversion of it, as we will see. When, uh, when headship, when any male relationship is perverted, they use their greater physical strength to dominate, and that's what they have done harming women throughout the ages. A backlash to that is inappropriate, where it goes past scripture. A doubling down on that, that that's what it's supposed to look like, is also inappropriate. But it's not explained this away. Proper understanding of male headship and female submission will lead to a beauty of relationship, not to the harm that we have seen. That's the curse, and that's where we head now, the origin of headship. So that's the definition, now we have the origin. This all began before the fall of man. God designed the male-female relationship to be one of leadership and help, 
of authority and submission before the fall. That doesn't flow out of a sinful response to one another. It flows out of God's plan. Turn to Genesis 1. So please do turn there. You will need to see these things. As written in the very first pages of your Bible, in the first books written by Moses. Genesis 1, as you understand, is an overview of creation. Right? Moses laying out the grand design of what God did, how he created, and it ends with the crowning event of creation. That is the creation of male and female. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice who is supposed to rule. They rule. Doesn't man dominates a woman, and then the man rules creation uh, with the help of the woman. It's the man and the woman rule creation with man leading and women helping. Goes on then to say, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then male and female, he created them. Male, really ground, earth, is, is, the, is the overall designation of the human race because it is the human race is viewed in light of the task given to the man to, to live out his role before the Lord. But as God creates the woman then, as we will see, he partners them together in that task, equal partners, yet he still calls the whole thing Man, because woman was created in light of the man's task, that's what 1 Corinthians 11 said, to help him accomplish that task. So that's Genesis 1, which gives us the overview. And if we just left there, we're like, well, there's, really, well, there's no male-female headship role there. What are you talking about? So if you just read Genesis 1, okay, they're together. They're equally expressing dominion over the earth as male and female. Great. Well, then Moses is inspired by the Spirit of God to write chapter 2 which lays out beautifully, specifically, in vibrant detail, the way that he created male and female. I mean, you understand that, right? Genesis 2 is not some kind of add-on from some you know, later uh, you know, editor who says, well, I'm going to just stick a bunch of stuff in here and we'll create a book that we call Genesis with you know, 50 different people adding to it. No, this is specifically written by Moses to, to, lay out, to lay the groundwork for why men and women relate to one another in the way they do. And that was given by God. If he left us with chapter one, we wouldn't know that. He gives us chapter two, so we have beautiful detail about it. It's not a mistake. It's not a contradiction. It's an expansion on the nature of what God did in chapter one. So he says in verse seven of chapter two, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is man male. So he created the male, created him first. Why did he do that? Because he's expressing the nature of the relationship between them. He could have created them at the same time, he could have created them any way that he wanted. And Moses isn't some, making up some mythical, myth, mythical thing that he's basing out of his culture uh, so that he's creating male patriarchy. No, he's, he's saying this is how God designed things so that in every way that God built things, he would show the man's leadership and the woman's help as she comes along and yet their togetherness and equal nature. He couldn't have done it any more perfectly because this is the spirit of God speaking through him. And he begins with what? Man created from the dust of the ground. Uniquely created because the, the creatures were created from the dust but they were not, did not have breathed into them the very life of God, the spirit of God as it were, which makes them unique as created in his image and relating to him. So the man is created first. It doesn't contradict chapter one or change the value of the man or the woman. It describes their unique roles. Man, as I mentioned, is the general name then for the whole human race. Right? That is that God created or named them on the basis of the function that they accomplished together, the woman being created to help the man accomplish that very function. See, the woman was created as a helper for the man. All right, so it's fascinating. 
that, that Moses would write this. He would write that the man was created, and now the man is left alone, right? He's put into the garden, right? And he's given instructions. He's given a job to do. All that happens, all that's before the fall, right? He's given the instructions in verse 16, right? You can eat from every tree but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he's given, God gives him instructions. But then verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. What, did God not know that that was going to happen? He creates the man. He's like, oh, blew it. He's by himself. What am I going to do now? So he does, he creates in this order on purpose so that we follow through, so that the man knows, as we will see, the man is aware of who he is, and we are aware of who men and women are. This is Holy Scripture written down in the right order for us to understand. It says he needs a helper. The woman was created. This is exactly what I read for you in 1 Corinthians 11. It says the woman was not created for the man's sake. The woman was created, or the man was not created for the woman's sake. The woman was created for the man's sake. What does it mean? Right here. The man had to have a helper to accomplish his task. Now, unfortunately, when you hear the word helper, you think little woman in the kitchen. You think the one who will help with the dishes. You think the one who walks around and vacuums the house. Unfortunately, some of you think that. What does he mean by helper here? What he means by helper is the necessary equal partner made in the image of God without which man cannot accomplish the task that God has given in any way. God said, fill the earth. How's the man going to do that on his own? It's impossible. He has to have someone else. He has to have the seed. He has the seed. He has to have the egg. He has to have the woman who then will also be able to bear the children and they will do this thing in total equality in that sense. He carries one portion of that responsibility. She carries the other. She uniquely designed to help him. So that initially, or really fundamentally, this helper role relates directly to the woman's ability to generate the egg and nurture the child in the womb and then be the primary child raiser and nurturer as the man brings the provision. That's how this was built. That's how this was designed. She is an absolutely necessary equal partner, entirely equal in her abilities in that sense. She simply has a different role. She's helping. She's coming alongside to accomplish this task. So don't downplay the idea of helper. There's much more to be said we don't have time. That will come in a couple weeks. The woman then was created from the man. That's exactly, again, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says there's headship because the woman, the man didn't come from the woman. The woman came from the man, and the woman was for the man to help him. God designed it this way, and it in no way lessens her value. Look at Genesis 2.22. Actually, we'll go to 20. Oh, 18, right? So the man was alone, so out of the ground... God forms or brings, ultimately, every beast of the field, every bird of the sky. The man gives names to all of them. And at the end of verse 20, for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Again, does God just make a mistake? He brings all the animals and God's like, oh, I thought there'd be someone there for you. No, he does this on purpose. He brings them all. And Adam realizes that all of the animals are fundamentally different from him. He names them as the one who has dominion over them. As we'll see in just a minute, he names the woman, but not as someone who has dominion over the woman. His naming over the woman is not expressing dominion. It will be expressing her fundamental equality. He names the animals as one who expresses dominion over them. But they're fundamentally ontologically different. They're not the same being as he is. And he finds no being that is the same as him in all those animals. He goes, there's no helper suitable for me. So then it gets sweet, right? Right? 
So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Men, you still have the same amount of ribs, okay? He gave you a rib back. He gave Adam, he recreated it back there, all right? So you don't have one less rib. But he did actually do this. This is not some kind of mythological conception. He did actually, if it says he did it, it's what he did. He took out a rib and he used that. Just like he'd used the dust for the man, so he uses the rib for the woman. Why? Why, why didn't he just use the dust of the ground? He could have and breathe life into that. He doesn't because he's directly indicating their unity, their equal value, their utter equality before a holy God. That's why he does this. Not to indicate that she is lesser, not of the same value, unimportant, to be dominated. That's ridiculous. The means of creation express the value of the act created. And he takes a rib right out of Adam. This is you just like you. Right? And that's exactly what the man is about to say. He does not diminish her value or allow for male domination, but emphasizes her partnership with the man in accomplishing the task that God has given to them. And then the man names the woman. As I said, not in an act of dominion or ruling over her, but an expression of her form and function. And notice what he names her. Now, it's to, verse 22. Again, I wish I had more time to preach this. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib. He fashioned. Ah, there's so much to be said here which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. I'm convinced you have the Lord Jesus bringing the woman to the man, tapping him on the shoulder or something like that, saying, hey, wake up. I've got something for you. It's the best Christmas morning ever. His whole life is about to absolutely change from loneliness to companionship, from an inability to accomplish his task, utter helplessness in accomplishing the task that God has given to now the ability to do all that God would have and all this from one act of creation, the act of creating the woman. And he and the man goes nuts. All right, now again, you've heard this preached, right? The man said, wow, unbelievable, right? Whoa, man. Sorry, I had, that's, that's my youth pastor upbringing. He calls her woman. Why? Because she's taken out of him. He doesn't call her woman to demean her. He doesn't call her woman to say, well, this is a little woman that I can now do what I want with. He says, she's woman. Why? Because she's flesh of my flesh. She's bone of my bone. She's equal with me. She came out of me. No man in his right mind, in his biblical mind, would ever mistreat a woman because she comes from him. She's equal to him. She reflects his very bones, his very flesh. How could he possibly dominate, harm, or mistreat her ever? And this is true of all men and all women. Now, we will see that marriage is instituted so that the man then lives out in a unique way the one flesh union with a woman. That's not for all men and all women. But our oneness is, and every man should look at every woman with a respect and value which says, that woman came out of me. She's not a sex object. She's not something for him to harm or manipulate or slobber over. He is for her to, uh, he is to appreciate her as to who she is created in the image of God. And if men would grow up and learn this, our society would not look like it does. This is who, Adam got it. He was perfect. He didn't have sin at this point. And he understood. He got it just right. This is the one that completes me. This is the one that enables me to accomplish my task. This is the special creation of God. Yes, for the man's benefit, but not for his domination. And really, ultimately, for God's benefit, for the man and the woman to accomplish what they were called to do. Thus, marriage, right? For this reason, because 
She is special and unique. And because she is, in that sense, is one flesh, then marriage is to exercise, to make permanent that one flesh union in a physical way as they come together to accomplish their purpose initially of having children. That's why he created them. And so together now, they can accomplish the task. There's no androgynous first man created who could somehow procreate on his own. This is some kind of mythological, evolutionary ridiculousness. That you needed male and female, always. And that's how they come together. And it is the sweetest thing ever. The man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. Well, then it all went bad. It's all good. Headship as it should be. The man loved to properly respond to God by exercising authority in his marriage. The woman loved to respond to him because they were total equals accomplishing his work. But then the fall. So we've got to hurry our way through this. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food... It was a delight to the eyes that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. This may very well indicate that the husband was right there with her as, the, as Satan deceives her, right? Satan says, God's word is wrong. God doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding back on you. So you need to be in charge. You need to lead. You need to, you need to be the one that makes this thing right. And Eve believed him, says 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Eve believed him. She was deceived. She thought the serpent was right. One way or the other, whether Adam's standing there right then or whether she beckons him over and says, look, this is what the servant said. So we need to take this fruit and eat it. Who's leading? She is. Where's Adam saying, wait a minute. God said you can't eat of that tree. I'm going to lead in the direction of what is right and good, and we are not going to do that, and we're going to pursue God. Or when he's standing right there, most likely, and the, Satan is deceiving his wife, he says, no, we're not going to do that. This is what God said, and this is where we will go. He abdicated his leadership and his headship. He abdicated it to the woman and ultimately to Satan in that way, and he eats. Again, 2 Timothy is clear. Adam was not deceived. So why did he eat? Because he valued his wife over God. It wasn't because he disvalued her. It was because she had already ascended in his eyes to being more important than the very commands of God. She, she influences him, and he eats. She leads. He responds. And the whole universe falls into sin. Who gets blamed? This is headship, men. Who gets blamed? The man. He was in charge. That's his in-chargeness, not to dominate, harm, but to keep from evil. And he didn't do it. Does it mean only the woman can commit evil? That only the woman can be deceived? Ridiculous. Certainly men can be deceived. Certainly men commit sin. Women are uniquely vulnerable when they desire to take charge. That's the curse. Fundamentally, it is now the woman's desire to take charge. And this is how she exercised her sin in the first place. She was deceived, but then she exercised her own headship, as it were. And this is now the woman's desire down throughout the ages to refuse to submit in a, in a relationship and to try to dominate. I'll show you that in a minute. doesn't mean she's uniquely morally fallible more than men. She's uniquely deceivable. She's deceivable in unique ways that the man is supposed to protect against. He has his own unique deceivabilities. Eve usurped Adam's headship, Adam abandoned his headship. Well, what happened then after the fall? So Genesis 3, 14. By the way, when God comes calling in the garden, who does he call for? Adam, right? Where are you? He said, who told you? Well, uh, it goes on. Verse 12, the man says, so how does a man respond to God's calling out of him? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. He thinks he's making an excuse. He's actually just condemning himself. Oh, I followed the woman. Wait a minute, you were supposed to lead. He, so he just, he, he throws himself under the bus even though he thinks he's throwing the woman under the bus. 
hey, you gave me the woman. This is your fault. I did what she said. You can almost hear God going, um, I told you to lead. She's your helper, and you followed her? This is my fault? No, it's yours. Right? Blames the woman. The woman, of course, blames who? The serpent. Wasn't my fault. I, I got to see. Well, in that sense, she serpent did deceive her. So God, this created thing, this one thing you created. So after the fall, then what happens? There's these role reversals where the serpent now, Genesis 3:14, it says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. So it's this physical curse. And then essentially a spiritual curse, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Here's the reversal. Angels, which Satan was, were, and, and animals, were created to serve men and to serve God. What happens? Role reversal. Now the angelic beings, the fallen ones, try to destroy men and, and dishonor God. They try to take God's place. That's a total reversal. That's the curse. Satan implacably hates God's creation, specifically men and women. That bore itself out most Specifically where? As Satan comes against Jesus. The seed of the woman in that sense. But it is all the seed of the woman as well. So that's the, cur- that's the reversal there. Then there's Eve, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Verse 16, sorry. The, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Here's the reversal. The thing which was her role physically to bear children now becomes hard. Just like Adam's role to be the provider, to work creation was supposed to be joyful and fruitful and now is hard. It fights against him. That's the reversal in creation. But there's also a relational reversal. Look what happens at the end of verse 16. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It isn't, it isn't egalitarians read that. Well, now she's going to love her husband. She didn't love him before. You, now you really like your husband. You'll, you will desire him. As though that's some twisted, weird thing that a woman would desire, would love her husband. No, the desire here is not a, not a rightful desire, not the love of Eve for her husband, which she certainly had before this. The curse doesn't make it implanted. The curse reverses it. This word desire is used in Genesis 4, 7. God says to Cain, if you do well, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you to master you. That's the woman's desire now down throughout the ages to reverse her role and to be the master. Has that played out? Of course. Down throughout the ages, this is the battle. So now we move to Adam's reversal. So her reversal was she was supposed to love, delighted in loving and coming underneath her husband. Now she wants to have mastery over him. His curse begins at the end of verse 16. He will rule over you. Instead of loving her gently, kindly, right, with the proper biblical authority, he now wants to do what? crush her. By the way, don't think it's a wise move for patriarchians and others to say, hey, men should rule women. No, that's the curse. That's what's stated right here. He will rule over you. That's not a proper male-female relationship. That's an improper domination relationship, which is a part of the curse that God put on men. Their sinful selves will now desire to harm, to crush, to dominate women. They do this either by totally abdicating their responsibility and leaving the woman open to all the dangers that she might face, or by seeking to manipulate, dominate, and control her in every way. And you see this played out down throughout the last 6,000 years of history. There's the battle of the sexes. It's a result of the fall. And in Christ, this is reversed. Back to proper male headship. Back to proper female response and helping and submitting. That solves the problem. It didn't cause it. This did. So as we walk our way through then what these things will look like, how we are to respond I'll just end with John Piper. He says, if I were to put my finger on one devastating sin today, 
It would not be the so-called woman's movement, but the lack of spiritual leadership of men at home and in the church. Satan has achieved an amazing tactical victory by disseminating the notion that the summons for male leadership is born of pride and fallenness, when in fact, pride is precisely what prevents a man from spiritually leading. The spiritual aimlessness and weakness and lethargy and loss of nerve among men is the major issue, not the upsurge of interest in women being in ministry. Might we be a church that encourages and strengthens our, our young men to be proper heads, that understands biblically how this works as a man leads and the woman helps and as they accomplish the task God has given, and might it be a sweet aroma to the world around us that has no concept of proper male-female relationships? What a sweet church, what a sweet place this will be. If we would properly reflect these truths, the world would wonder what had happened and by God's grace, they would confess their sins and repent in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the truths of your scripture, which enable us to properly understand who we are. And as a church, Lord, I, I call out, I cry out that you would give us strength to understand who we are as men and women, to properly live out our roles underneath your headship over us, that we would love to do this and that we would properly express this. And in doing so, we would find our true purpose, our true meaning in you. And the world would see the sweetness, even as we wrestle and struggle, as we fail, as we turn to you in repentance, that the world would see the sweetness of properly understanding maleness and femaleness and of living these truths out in headship. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.